Welcome everyone to this week's edition of Broadcaster Hour. I'm Roger Hoover with you from Birmingham, Alabama. We've got Kyle Crooks, of course, from Gainesville, Florida. And in the center of the screen, we leave the SEC footprint and go to Big Ten country. Say hello to Brian Bush, one of the broadcasters for the University of Michigan. And Brian, it's great to see you. How's everything going up in Big Ten country? We noticed you look a little bundled up up there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got into the, the upper 40s last night into this morning. So we're we're battling, but no, good to be here. Long time listener, first time caller. So <laughs> I love that. I love that. Listen to WFAN. I'd hear that all the time growing up in New Jersey. But uh, Brian, for you, it's it is football weather. And for you, you are part of the Michigan football broadcast and doing a lot of great things with Michigan. Just last week, what did it feel like to have the big house full and, and just have that football environment back? And you'll have it back again this weekend with Washington in town. Yeah, I mean, you guys know just how special uh, certain things are at various campuses. And uh, for, for Ann Arbor, I mean, the big house is it. You know, I, I, I'm obviously on the, the basketball play-by-play call, um, and, and that's very, very special, and what they're doing is amazing. But um, the big, big house, Michigan Stadium, Saturdays in the fall, there's just something about that here that transcends and you know from my perspective it was only my fourth game at the big house last year because things were so thrown off i did home games uh my portion of the broadcast at my house and i did road games at the stadium we called road basketball games at the big house but i didn't see any of the home football games because we had a capacity limit and i could do it remotely uh so that was my fourth game and uh, man, just just to see everything, it was a perfect day. It was a, a, a very impressive week one win. Um, it, it was just special. And, and for me, it was the newness of it. But for the people who had been there for so long, for the season ticket holders who you know have been coming to tailgate and, and spend time in Ann Arbor every Saturday for years and decades, I, I can't even imagine what that meant to them. So it was it was so special. And last year, like all of us, we had to call the games remotely. For me, it was on the second floor of our communications building, watching a monitor, essentially doing the games where they do the talk shows from. And and Roger's doing games from his house. And for you, I know you're doing games in in Ann Arbor in the big house and and calling basketball games. And just for you, how how tough was last year? And, And maybe... How much did it make you a better broadcaster? Because not being there, not being able to be around the team, but and still also try to pick up on some little things, but calling it off a monitor, it's just it was hard to do, but I feel like we were all able to adjust. How about you? I think first and foremost, it made me a more appreciative broadcaster for the things that I think we all kind of took for granted when you experienced this. Uh, to be able to travel with the team and go to these road venues and and be a part of what makes college basketball so great, those atmospheres. To have that taken away is tough. Honestly, from a basketball side, I thought of the four major sports, that's the easiest one to call from. I couldn't imagine. You know, I, I did I did eight years of minor league baseball. I could not imagine trying to call a, a major league game with every feat imaginable because you just a pop-up behind home plate can look the same trajectory-wise as a home run to center field. Um and then you couple that with MILB.TV, where you're lucky to have a shot of home plate uh, in that situation. So, you know, for basketball, basically every everything that you need to see is on the screen. Uh, we were able to pipe in effects. Um, it was manageable. Uh, it was a fun challenge for a little bit. Then, you you know, when, when we came back from our pause and, and rallied to win at Wisconsin, you wish you were there. 
maybe the game of the regular season in college basketball is Michigan at Ohio State. Uh, and, and, you know, still a great game to call, but you wish you were there, right? Um, so for me, it, it's, it's one of those years where you just, you realize how special the position is. You want to try to make it so that people who are listening, it sounds normal to them because we were all just starved for normalcy. And if, if any of our broadcasts could bring that to somebody, great. Even though we had to do it differently, um, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful we'll never have to do that again. But, um, you know, just, just really thankful that we had games because, gosh, you know, when I'm sitting there last August in the Big Tens, you know, at the time canceling football, you're not feeling great about basketball or, or hockey, which is a big thing up here. Michigan's got a lot of Olympic sports that are very successful. Um, you know, I, I'm just glad we had anything – you know, we had a Big Ten championship, Elite Eight run. You know, that, that was a that was a heck of a story. I, I just wish there would have been more fans around there to be able to see it in person. No doubt about it. And that was what you had last spring, and now you're gearing up for another basketball season coming up. But for you, I want to go all the way back to the beginning of your journey. What was the initial spark in sports casting? we always talk about on the show. Nobody's path is similar. I think you may have one of the more unique paths as well. Yeah, from my standpoint, I, I never really thought about being a broadcaster for a while. I was very shy as a kid, and uh, I realized pretty quickly that playing sports was not going to be a thing for me. Um, my peak athletic achievement was uh, the 2007 Cleveland Plain Dealer High School Bowler of the Year. Uh, that is That is the peak. Yes, yes. It's, it's, it's carried me to this moment. Um <laughs> But uh, for me, I, I went to college at Ohio University, and uh, at, at the outset, I just thought, okay, maybe I could try sports writing, see if that would work. And uh, I had a, a professor of my Journalism 101 class, uh, Tom Hodson, who is, is still a mentor and a dear friend of mine, who saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. And I think that's what makes educators and, and professors and teachers so special is that you know, they see the potential and the, you know, the opportunity before even the person does. And he was doing Ohio women's basketball at that point, had said, hey, um, I, I'd love you to come out and try. So I, I did a few halftime updates, ended up doing some color analysis for him. Um, and that kind of just snowballed from there. I loved it. I had a blast with it. Uh, snowballed into doing some Ohio baseball, uh, working with an off-campus off radio station to do high school football and basketball. Um, and that just kind of you know rolled and rolled and rolled from there. Um, my initial love in, was baseball. I grew up in Cleveland in the 1990s. Uh, if I'd have grown up in the 80s, I probably football would have been my first love because the Browns were great. Uh, and in the 2000s with the LeBron era, I probably would have been, the, you know, basketball with the Cavs. Uh, but you know, I was five years old at a World Series game. Uh, at, I was at my first World Series game at five, and my dad was at his first World Series game at almost 40. Um, you know, it was it was such a special time to be in and around that you know that region. So I always kind of figured I'd want to do baseball. Did minor league ball for eight years um, and then kind of pivoted more to the college route um, for a number of reasons. Um, and, and, you know, from there uh, got into IMG, which became Learfield IMG College, which is now Learfield. And uh, that kind of, you know, ultimately led me to Michigan. Take a moment to brag on Ohio University and the opportunities they gave you. You mentioned the great professor you had that really opened the door, but you got to be really proud of everything that that school continues to do in broadcasting and in journalism. It doesn't get talked as much maybe as, you know, Syracuse or Northwestern or Mizzou, but it's a great school. Yeah, and, and I'm actually in particular excited because one of my 
closest friends. We lived together for five years in Winston. Uh, Tony Castricone, who I know you guys, I believe you've had him on the show before. Uh, he's in town. Like, he's here. I see him today. I'm stoked about that. It's almost we lived together love. for five years. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but Tony, you know, Tony was, was um, you know, a great student broadcaster there. And, and what he's been able to do at Washington is amazing. Um, you know, Chuck Swirsky with the Bulls has always been so nice to me and gracious with his time. And, um, you know, it's, it's not to your point, it's not to the depth of a, of a Syracuse or, or something along those lines. But, um, for me, honestly, I, man, I couldn't have done it at Syracuse. I needed to be bad for a little while. I needed to have a hundred games with not a whole lot of people listening to me with not a whole lot of competition. It's a big reason why, I realized I needed to kind of work at an off-campus station and, you know, make 30 bucks a game and just have some games where I wasn't very good. Because uh, I hadn't, I wasn't sitting there at eight years old calling a game off a of TV. That was not, I know a lot of people in this industry have that as their background. That wasn't me. Um, so I needed that and, and Ohio provided that for me. So um, always indebted, you know, uh, their current broadcaster, Russ Eisenstein, has always been very, very, um, supportive. And he gave me a lot of opportunities as a, a 19, 20 year old student that, you know, I don't know if it would have been as, as acclimated. And Ohio is very good at the behind the scenes stuff, which has helped me a lot at Learfield, um, where you learn how to make the entirety of the broadcast sound good. Yes. If your play by play sounds good, that's great. But if everything else sucks, no one's going to want to listen. And I learned that at a young age at Ohio. Uh, and that has continued to be a focal point, whether I was in minor league baseball with IMG now Learfield, uh, it is a team effort. The play-by-play person on the radio broadcast, sorry, I've got a motion sensor here in the, in the office, so that might happen a couple times. Um, the, the play-by-play person on radio is so vital, but you ha- everything has to come together. You know, quarterback can't do what he's supposed to do without the help of the offensive line. And, we have to wear multiple hats. Sometimes we have to be the quarterback and the offensive line. Uh, and it's, it's so valuable. And I, I learned that at, at a very young, young age. Yeah, I feel like you learned that in minor league baseball because you're the, you're the jack of all trades. You're the stat pack guy. You're the game note guy. You're the, you're the pole to tarp guy. Um, in minor league baseball, Brian, specifically in terms of how long did it take you to get to your delivery and your style? Are you, are you still looking at that nowadays and still, um, you know, just kind of parsing through when you listen back to tape, just how many years, cause I'm still going through it. I'm 10 years into this and still trying to develop my style, but I feel like minor league baseball, 140 games, constant reps. That's the ultimate, that's the ultimate, uh, rep sport where you get the opportunity to, to get really good at this cause you do it so much. Well, and, and I think, you know, first off from my standpoint, uh, because I hadn't done a whole lot, I just kind of gleaned as much as I could from those I listened to. So early on in baseball, I was a Tom Hamilton clone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, Tom Hamilton is the guy I still listen to more than anybody else. Uh, he's who I grew up listening to. I remember going to Indians games and we would hustle back to our car so we could hear the post-game highlights. That, that was, and now again, this was before I was ever a broadcaster. It's just what we did. My dad wanted to hear it. I wanted to hear it. Got to hear Hammy's highlights. Um, but you're right. Baseball, I don't care what sport you want to go into, calling minor league baseball helps because you get reps at describing what's happening. You have to talk. You have to deal with great games and terrible games. So 
I think we're always trying to seek out our voice and our tone and our mentality. I think where minor league baseball really helped me was, was that if I did feel like I needed to improve something, I had a ton of reps really quickly. For example, this was, I think my first year in Winston-Salem 2012. And I, I realized when listening to some tape that I was putting the verb in front of the subject when a ball was put in play. So instead of saying, Jones races back into left center, I would say going back into left center is Jones. And we all understand why that happens, right? We're looking down at our scorecard, in particular when, you know, your team, in my case, the dash was at the plate and, you know, say Potomac's in town, it's the first game of a series. You haven't seen that much. You don't know instinctually who their left and center fielders are. So, I spent probably two months, and again, th those broadcasts weren't my best, it, but I needed to kind of shake that from my instincts of, hey, I want to, if I'm going to broadcast, I want it to be able to be transcribed in a way where it doesn't have to be perfect English, but it should flow to where if you transcribe what I'm saying, it's a pretty typical sentence. And none of us say, you know, having me on this show today is Kyle and Roger. It's no, Colin Roger are having me on the show today. So if you can drill that into yourself, it's not easy when you, you, that was your instinct for so long. But for me, that was one example of where just having a game every five months was invaluable because I needed to get that. In my opinion, there, I, not everybody does it that way. I, I hear plenty of people do that and that doesn't mean they're bad broadcasters, but for me, I felt that was important and, having minor league baseball and the reps that it comes with allows you to, to accomplish that quicker than a 12 game football season or a 35 game college basketball season. Do you have any minor league baseball stories? I say that because I did a season with Jacksonville uh, with Roger. I know Roger has plenty of stories where one of them, where his suitcase fell out of the team bus in Birmingham, Alabama. Never saw Me, I've again. slept in the broadcast booth uh, because I didn't want to drive an hour and a half home to St. Augustine from Jacksonville. I mean, you, you spent a, a long time in it. Do you have anything that stands out in a, in a wacky, wonky minor league story? Well, uh, us three can hang out afterward, and I can tell you a few. Um, <laughs> no, so fortunately, you know, knock on wood, I, I really didn't have any sort of like terrible travel stories. Like we didn't have a long night where we were, you know, camped out on the side of a highway because the bus broke down. But I won't say the ballpark because they're still, they still have a team. But it was a three-game road series, and I went in the booth the first day, felt totally fine. And again, this is like this is pre-COVID, right? So, you know, if you're feeling a little bit sick, you kind of there was more of that instinct to tough through it. So, first day felt great. It was a Monday through Wednesday series, and I get back to the hotel that night, and I'm just I'm a little sniffly. All right, it, it was a long day, travel day, whatever. Go back Tuesday, I was all right when I got there, and then um, by the end of the of the broadcast, it was a longer game. I'm like, man. Boy, I, I just don't feel great. And I get back for the getaway day and uh, their broadcaster who I, again, I'm not going to say who it is, but I just, I, I love the guy, but it, I think it was his first year. And he's like, Oh yeah, I meant to tell you they were looking the, they think there might be some asbestos in the booth. And we're going to take a look at that. So I call, you know, three games solo in this booth and there's asbestos and apparently there was it wasn't a lot but like it it was legit, like by wednesday i was i was struggling man like i it wasn't great 
And I'm just like, what, what am I doing with my life? This is absurd. <laughs> um, but that was just one for me, like, you know, but Hey, it's, it's, the show goes on. It's minor league baseball. Um, there you're more worried about getting your mascot set up and ready to go with the, the group picnic in right center. Uh, I, I enjoyed my time in minor league baseball, but I, I did it long, long enough. I, I, you know, wh- whether that resulted in what I'm doing here, or if I were in sales somewhere and in, in, you know, the middle of nowhere, uh, I I had my fun in minor league baseball, and uh, I'm I'm glad I did it, but I'm glad I'm not in it anymore. <laughs> well, part of the fun I know for you started uh, kind of like I did in the Appalachian League uh, so while you're still in college. I was with the Kingsport Mets, and I only had to go to Burlington where you are. I only had to go once. So that means I only had to climb up and find a way into that press box atop the roof just you know three or four times. But for you, that must have been a daily grind. We've talked that press box has been talked about on the show before by others. <laughs> yeah, it's it. Was- was one, but at that point, man, I was 20 years old. Like that was, I was felt like I was a king. I, yeah. I felt like I was a king in that booth. I just, it was my first chance in minor league baseball. Uh, it was, it was tough. Don't get me wrong. I was not, you know, I had a, I had a built-in excuse if they had to put the tarp on the field. I'm sorry. It's, it's dangerous. I just got to stay here. Right. Um, man, I loved the Appy League. I'm so glad that they've been able to, um, to kind of survive and I think really thrive in this new world order of baseball. Um, I mean, you know, I would have loved to have been the voice of the sock puppets. That'd have been sweet. <laughs> um, but no, I, my favorite part of the Appy League is Johnson City. So we went there mm-hmm. for a series and then we played them in the playoffs and I had a heartbreaking narrow 20 to two loss in the in the uh, the deciding game there. Um, but they had I think it's gone now, right? But the the hill in yes. right field and I, so I walked that thing. I just wanted to see, yeah. like, okay. And that thing is steep. I, yeah. So the manager that year was Mike Schill, who's now with the Cardinals. Couldn't have been nicer. Literally, his mom reached out to compliment me, and he and she did that with other people on the. But Johnson City didn't have a broadcaster, so she would, you know, Mrs. Schilt just kind of reached out to people and said, "Hey, thank you for doing these broadcasts, et cetera, et cetera." So I, Schilt and I talked several times, and and he. I was like, what do you tell your outfielders? They're like, just don't look. It's going to come down. Don't run up it. It's going to come down. Don't worry about it. But that was, to me, that's the best. That's the best Appy League uh, quirk is that hill. It's, it's, it's a bummer it's not there anymore, but it should not be there. It's smart. <laughs> no doubt about it. And kind of speaking of your minor league baseball days as well, the time in Burlington, you go to Frisco and then back to Winston-Salem. Were you just kind of focused only on baseball or how were you kind of looking at building your career in those early stages? At the early stages, yes. Um, the 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 hope and the goal was to be able to, when I signed off of my last broadcast in September, to not um, have to wait until April to be on the air again. But I would have I would have done that if that were the right situation because I wanted to do baseball that significantly. Um, it's honestly it's why once I got to Winston Salem, I, I wasn't you know seeking out any double a job or even any triple a job one or number one or number two because i just i felt like that was a good place for me to be because it was a, a really good organization with an amazing ballpark in a um in a city that had uh at the time img for me to um to get work during the off season and kind of build some some different um you know some different skill sets and some different things for my resume um 
but yes, until probably about probably 2015, which is after my fourth year in minor league baseball, that was when I started to realize, okay, you know, I don't have to continue to pursue baseball. That still was the primary focus for a couple of years after that. Um, but yeah, from basically from the time I started until 2015, it was, you know, I, I wouldn't have turned down a big time offer from another sport, but you know, outside of like a, an outlandish, ridiculous opportunity that I wasn't prepared for, um, I was going after baseball as much as I could. So what was that mindset shift like when now you, you transfer from minor league baseball to now IMG and the college world and, and studio hosting? How do you get to IMG, uh, do that job, cultivate relationships and, and eventually move up uh, in, a, in a great company? Yeah. So, um, I, obviously, I mean, I, I, I can't speak higher of that department of that, of, of the company, um, of what they do to develop talent. Um, and, you know, and, and the results certainly speak for themselves in terms of who has been able to graduate from, you know, that, that department, that building in Winston-Salem to go on and, and do amazing things. Um, at the time it was, it, it strictly was just, hey, here's a way to, to, you know, balance my resume. Here's a way to get experience doing because, you know, in baseball, uh, I think a, a, a pretty common way to kind of get your foot in the door is to go and get a pre post position. So um, that for me was the allure um, and working the, the two main schools that I, I worked on from a hosting standpoint were Kentucky and then Michigan, um, you know. I basically felt like, okay, if I could show them, Hey, I've been in minor league baseball and I, you know, hosted a national championship game for, you know, Kentucky. And I hosted, you know, X number of Michigan football and basketball games. At least that would, that would be a potential to stand out. It didn't result in anything, but that was kind of my mindset on it. Um, from there, then you kind of realize as, you know, Tony Castricone goes to Washington. David Shoemake gets the Duke job. Matt Chazanow goes to Washington State. Um, you know, before that, Andy Demetra, Carter Blackburn, Jason Benetti. You know, I mean, these are these are high level broadcasters going to to do big things. It's one of those things. If if you put the time and effort into that company and in particular that department, and you do things the right way, you're giving yourself a chance to succeed. We all know that there's no direct path to a certain position. Um, you know, we, we could talk about how I got to Michigan, but, but basically it started with two guys getting into a fight. Um, that's, that's, that's what started me becoming the voice of Michigan basketball. Um, but you have to be, you have to put yourself in that spot to be ready if, and when that happens. And to me, uh, now Learfield puts people in that position better than any, anywhere that I've been associated with or that I know about. Uh, it's not for everybody. I totally get the allure of, of wanting to call games no matter what. This is this takes a backseat. But I can tell you that in hosting for Tom Leach and Mike Pratt at Kentucky and Matt Shepard and Terry Mills at Michigan, I became a better play-by-play -play broadcaster by listening to them, by understanding the totality of the broadcast, by doing my hosting responsibilities. I became a better play-by-play -play broadcaster so that when I did have the fill-in opportunities, I was ready for them. You can't substitute experience, 
but that's the next best thing. And it allows you to be put in that position to where a Learfield and a school entrusts you in that moment to be able to, because you've been a part of the broadcast in a different way of, well, if they host, why can't they call the game? And it goes from there. And you, you mentioned being ready when your number is called. And I know you, you did some fill in for Duke originally. Um, and so what was that like? And that's one of those things. You're not just stepping into any other broadcast, right? That's that's like Alabama football or or the New York Yankees on radio. Duke basketball, that's a big brand. So how what were the nerves like? What was it like to talk to Coach K? I assume you interviewed him. What was that whole experience? So I, I did not talk to Coach K just okay. logistically. They they had the analyst, um, John Roth, do that. But um, I was terrified, I'll be honest. Um, so that I found out about that assignment a week after I started full-time with the department. And not only were they two Duke basketball games, but it was the 999th and 1,000th wins <laughs> for Coach K at Duke. And I'm like, how? Me? Why? <laughs> what? Um, and, and it's, again, I, I think it's very similar. The, you know, the leadership team at, at, you know, at Learfield, you know, at the time IMG, they saw something in me before I saw it myself. Like my professor, you know, on a, on a fall day in Athens, Ohio in 2007. Um, I think in some cases, um, we think we're ready before we are. And in some cases, we don't know we're ready until someone else has to kind of push us into that. And that was it for me for Duke. Now, I was terrified partly because I also, you know, because it's crossover season, I'm, I'm engineering the broadcast as well. And there's a lot of moving parts to make it sound good. And that was a year where they were renovating um, the crow's nest. So we were kind of off to the side and it was literally like the second and third times that they were doing a broadcast there for the, the network. So th there were a few moving parts, but yeah, I mean, I was, I was nervous. That was, um, but that was kind of the goal. I, when I left minor league baseball to go to IMG, I knew I was giving up. 95 plus percent of my play-by-play -play assignments for that next calendar year my goal was to and my decision was rooted in the fact that i wanted to transition from a bunch of meaningless games to a few meaningful games now i mean my early baseball game i loved it but you could even ask the players they're worried they, they want their team to do well but man they're trying to move up to the next level if you're an a ball you're trying to get better you could have a you could have somebody take a no hitter into the eighth or ninth inning, or it could be a playoff game, and yeah, you get those juices flowing. But the vast majority of minor league baseball games don't carry the type of meaning that you know a, a Duke home game would carry in basketball, or a Michigan home game carries in basketball or football. Um, that's the transition I wanted to make. I wanted to make my games stand out a little bit more, uh, and because of that, I had to sacrifice a ton of play-by-play -play. and it was not an easy decision and i totally understand people who don't want to do that but i think eventually you get to a point where okay i think your tape's good enough now you need now it needs to pop more now it's not so much about your skills it's about does they do they want to listen to dash versus hillcats or do they want to listen to duke basketball to michigan basketball because ultimately that, that's that's advice that Corey Provis gave me when I sent him my demo. This is a long time ago. I, I haven't talked to Corey in several years, but he said he said you know try to get try to get a major league game because demo people listen to your demo want to hear Twins Tigers. They don't want to hear Dash Hillcats. 
kind of along those lines as well, uh, when you talk about all the great guys you had at IMG that got on to get some great jobs, and it kind of reminds me of that Syracuse Newhouse Mafia. There's a certain style in the way they do things. There's some inner knowledge you guys share with each other. Is there uh, kind of a secret to success for all of you guys or some certain characteristics you picked up along that helped you the most in all the work you've done since? Yeah, I don't know if it's quite a, a mafia or anything like that, but I, I, I do think what what Learfield helps to teach you is that you understand the big picture. You understand the totality of the assignment of the responsibility of the moment. Um, it, it, it goes so far beyond the company goes so far beyond your radio broadcast that it's, it's difficult sometimes even to comprehend it. But when you work out of that building, you see at least from the radio side, all that matters. And ultimately Listen, if you have a, the best play-by-play guy in the world, but you don't play three paid spots and don't do two live reads, or you have a middle-of-the-road broadcaster, but everything gets played, we all know what Learfield would rather have, right? You need to take care of that aspect. Um, and I think that's where, in those in those interviews and in those conversations with schools, um, schools don't hire play-by-play broadcasters that frequently. I mean, think about... You know, I, I, Aaron Goldsmith told me the story when he was going through the Mariners process that because, um, I mean, the Mariners had not hired a, a, a full time broadcaster for decades because it was, you know, Dave Niehaus was there forever since Rick Riz and, and Riz had been there for a while. And they alphabetized all the all the applications by first name. A-A-R-O-N. So he was the first person they heard. If his name is Sean Goldsmith. He might still get that job, but he might not, right? There's there's no rhyme or reason, A, to how opportunities come open, and B, how they – it's a lot different than applying for a sales position. Those are much more cyclical. A lot of people come and go with that, whereas for a play-by-play position, you know, when whenever Don Fisher at Indiana retires – there won't be a soul at that at that school that's ever gone through a hiring process for their broad, for their broadcaster. So how do they do it? That that's where you kind of mesh ideas, and that that's where having the understanding of you know maybe solicit applications in a similar way, but what a school wants, what they care about, how they want to organize applicants, how many people they want to talk to, is just so different. I think that's where it kind of helps in that. You know, people go through that process. Doesn't always work by any stretch, but having that, having that opportunity to bounce ideas off people and know what other processes look like, that I think really helps. But yeah, I mean, it's not like everybody. You know, not everyone from Syracuse gets every job. Not everyone from Learfield gets every Power Five position. Um, you know, but it, again, you're, you're you're trying to enhance your your chances. You're trying to help things out. It's, it's not easy, but if you can bump your chance up 2%, is that worth it? I think in a lot of cases it is. And for you in Michigan, it went from filling in for Matt Shepard to a full-time opportunity. Just what can you tell us about everything that kind of went into that, first of all, opportunity for you to make the move from Winston-Salem to Ann Arbor, and then how once you got to Ann Arbor, you started ingratiating yourself and becoming part of that Michigan Wolverine community? Yeah, so um, I had been hosting for Michigan um, down in Winston-Salem for a few years. And before any of, um, you know, really before any of the, the process started, 
um, there was a game that Matt had to miss um, during the 2018 season. They were playing Chattanooga. It was the day after Thanksgiving. And I had just basically said to my boss, said, hey, I, you know, I've been hosting for them for a few years. Matt has to miss the game. I, I'd love to call it. Um, I, I could, it was the day after Thanksgiving. I could drive, see family on Thanksgiving, which is very rare in our business. Is we do Thanksgiving, head up to Ann Arbor, through Columbus to drive back North Carolina to host Michigan, Ohio State the next day in North Carolina. Um, and they said, okay, yeah, let's do it. So um, I went up there, called the game, um, and then that just, I think, everything went smoothly. Um, I filled in for another game in December that Matt had to, had to miss. And then a few weeks after that, um, it was announced that he was taking over as the Tigers play-by-play voice. Um, you know, at that point, I didn't know what that meant for the rest of that season or moving forward. Um, but after a, a couple of weeks of, of conversations that I, I was not involved with, I, but was being discussed about this, they, they basically said, hey, here are a couple of games in the regular season that Matt has to miss because of Tigers responsibilities. And then, you know, spring training telecasts start the week of the Big Ten tournament. Uh, it's just not going to be feasible for Matt to to do those games, so we're going to have you travel and do them. Um, which was, I mean, that was a, a thrill of a lifetime. Because at that point, like, you don't know. A, you never know. Like, you can never assume that your team is going to make a run in the postseason. And they got to the Sweet 16 after getting the Big Ten Tournament Championship game um, the week prior. But you never know that. And, and for me, I, there was no guarantee I was going to get that job. There was no guarantee that, that you know, Matt was not going to do it. it. It ultimately was determined that he, he couldn't make it work. Um, and then it was ultimately determined that, you know, they wanted to bring me aboard and have me be the, the main guy. But, you know, for that whole run, uh, I, I was trying to soak it up as much as I could because you just, you never know. A, you never, never know. You know, you're going to get a Sweet 16 opportunity again for a program. Now, Michigan's been there a lot. That's the expectation here. But from my standpoint, I, I treated it as a three-week job interview. Um, you know, and, and it's definitely different when you're showing up occasionally and then being there all the time for the biggest three weeks of the season. Um, the thrill and then after that, honestly, it was kind of a waiting game. Um, it was, you know, basically it was trying to figure out, hey, can Matt do it? Matt had been doing it for a while. I, I wasn't going to sit here and, you know, try to take away any opportunities from anybody. I, I was ready and, and willing to, to, you know, to do the job if they deemed that it was open. Um, but it was just kind of a waiting out process. In fact, so that June, Michigan baseball went to the College World Series and um, they didn't have, you know, they had you know, a local station carry some home games during the regular season, but they didn't have any sort of um, network for baseball. Um, so while I was waiting for for more information on the basketball job, I got a call on a Monday saying, hey, are you able to call the College World Series this weekend? And I'm like, what? And that that to me, honestly, you know, I am... I'm beyond blessed that I get to call Michigan basketball, but as somebody who called a thousand ish baseball games in the minor leagues, 
but you know, I never, I never really called games that, again that truly mattered, right? I never got it. I, I didn't fill in in the big leagues at any point. I, I transitioned out of baseball to call those six games. Felt like a closure in baseball that I will never ever forget because I didn't expect it. I had to treat it like minor league baseball because. That's all behind. Um, but from the basketball process, I I asked a couple people who I knew, but they're like, we don't know, we haven't heard anything. You know, good luck. And then I, you know, I found out in like late August, early September, like right around kickoff of football, that that they did want to bring me up here and um, you know move shortly thereafter and continued to to work with the company. Um, but yeah, it was uh, it was it was a unique process. But it, 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 you know, it basically it. To me, the lesson is you just you kind of have to do the best that you can, and then realize you're not guaranteed anything. There's there's a lot of really qualified people that can do this job. Um, I was just really thankful and blessed that they picked me. Before we get to the technical side of play by play and what you like to hear, uh, I'm interested because that trial run, right? So you do the the couple weeks of basketball in the NCAA tournament. You're doing the College World Series. How in that spot as a broadcaster, knowing that there is the possibility that you're in the running for the men's basketball job, not think too much about that and put too much pressure on yourself as you're calling the game like, man, I, I better nail this call. I better nail them going to the championship series. How do you I don't know if it's possible to flush those memories out, but did you feel that pressure calling those games during what you kind of coined as an audition? For me, the actual broadcasts. into prep like i prep my tail off for that um the broadcast themselves i didn't really feel it for me it was the interactions with the team with the time coach beeline or coach package because i didn't have much of a relationship with them i was just you know i was showing up to to get them through the end of the season so for me that's where i really felt the pressure i i remember the the third time i ever called michigan basketball was at indiana and i mean that was you know you want to talk about you know, a cathedral of college basketball. And I'm looking around and about a half an hour before the game, um, one of the TV, uh, the Michigan TV crew members comes up to me and says, Hey, you know, um, normally Shep would grab like three or four interviews with players after the game. You know, are you good doing that? And like, at the time, I'm like, I'm going to say yes to anything. You could ask me to run up to the very top of assembly hall and do whatever. Like I'm in, I'm going to do it. But then you're sitting there going, well, crap, what are they, what if they lose? They don't know who the hell I am. Like, and I got to ask, I got to ask some questions. And then absolutely dominated. Never been more relieved about the team I was calling a game for winning that game than that least discussed or talked about during the process. Um, how did he handle interviews? How did he handle interactions with, with players and coaches? That's where I felt it. In terms of the broadcast, I was happy to be there. Um, there was the urgency to be very well prepped for it and to, and to bring like a local flavor. Like you got to talk as if, you know, you're not a national person, you know, helicoptering in to do a game and telling people, oh, you know, did you know Ignis Prisdakis is good? And fans know that. He was a Big Ten freshman of the year. You got to have that local flavor. But I, I felt pretty a little bit more nervous and amped up about 
And when you turn on basketball now on the radio, uh, what what do you want to hear? What makes a great broadcast for basketball on the radio in your eyes? I mean, first off, it's it's the critique I always give. They send me tape, score, time and score, time and score. It just doesn't happen enough. Um, you know, and, and, and now I guess if you listen on satellite radio, you can you can hit the button and you can see it. But, you know, I, I, I think that's the minority. People want to know what's going on. Secondly, I, I just you want the passion to come out. And that was, for me, one of the tougher things to manufacture last season without crowd noise and energy. I remember listening to my first game. We, we, hope, we opened against Bowling Green at home. It was a pre-routine buy game, got the win. Nothing, you know, just a just a your run-of-the-mill November home college basketball game against a, a mid-major team. And I remember listening to it. I'm like, you don't realize just how much you feed off a crowd and that energy. Uh, for me, I want to hear that. You know, it's different in basketball than it is in other sports. Um, you know, in baseball, I want more of a conversation. I want call. Come on, man. The atmosphere is so important. The energy is so important. I want to hear that. Uh, and if that comes across, I'm going to be a lot more tuned into what's happening as opposed to, you know, if it's just mundane and routine and stuff like that. And, um, you know, I, to me, I, it's not going to take a whole lot for me to listen. Um, but if you really want to draw me in, make me care about it. Make me want to make me want to be locked in on this as much as I can. And then for basketball as well, how do you get ready? How do you organize your charts? So what's important with you to have going into every basketball game you call? Yeah, so for me, um, that's why I think there's such a huge advantage in you know being the the play-by-play broadcaster for a team because you really, I could call, you know, once a few games get, you know, in the books, I could call a Michigan game and not really prep for Michigan. Uh, um, obviously I still do, but you, you're so acclimated into it. You could do it. Um, for the, for the visiting team, what I normally do is it's not super scientific, but I don't really touch my charts outside of updating stats until about 24 hours before. I just open a new Word document, and I will put down, okay, who are the 10 players on, say, Iowa that I, I know are going to play or are likely to play? And then I'll put trends, you know, Coach McCaffrey, um, you know, last game. And I just, have these, I just have these notes, and I will read any game notes that either side has. Um, I normally go five pages through. I Google every opposing player, and I just go through at least five pages to see if there's any, both in the all and in the news section, just to see if there's anything that's, you know, feature story, something like that. Um, and then I will, I will basically just take as many notes as I can. And then I go in and I actually fill out my Excel spreadsheet, and I have on my, um, I have on my, uh, like the main chunk. Uh, for each player, I I basically treat it like a game note in, when I was making them in minor league baseball, where I bold what is like the key point, um, and then I've got the details so that I know it's kind of where my eyes are going to go. My eyes will go to what's more standing out on my chart. So I have two locations on there. One is that bolding in their main portion that has some details beyond that. And then I have a little bar above each player's name where basically the last thing I do before I print my notes is I look through and I say, okay, if I'm introducing this person in the starting lineup and I've got 
20 words, what would I say? What is the 20 word description of Luca Garza? Okay, let's type it in there. And that's what I put, you know, first team All-American averages, you know, third nationally in points, whatever it was. And it's right there. So that, and that's normally how I do starting lineups is I'm just looking at that little yellow bar that I have above each one. So for me, you know, say, you know, college basketball, normally you've got either two full days or three full days. Um, normally say Michigan played Wednesday, Thursday morning, I'm normally updating stats and just kind of getting the framework that I don't, it can be almost mindless, right? Like you're finishing the game, it's fresh in your mind, you type all that stuff in. And then Thursday afternoon, evening, it's about scouring online game notes, previous game, stuff like that. And, and, and getting those notes down Friday is normally about, um, you know, finishing that normally game notes are, are coming out on that Friday, just realistically. Um, and then Friday night, even early, if it's a later game Saturday, I might fill out the chart itself the day of the game because a it's fresher and B at that point, it's just, I have all the information. It's just about, compiling it in the way that I want. The other thing that I do that um, has been a huge help, um, my girlfriend did vet school. She's a veterinarian, and she she got me onto this. It's an app called Brainscape. And I, uh, I have each – I'll pull it up here. I have each team that we play, and basically on one side – of course, I have to log in. Um, I have one side where it's just the number – and then on the backs, it's just flashcards. So obviously I don't have to worry about that for Michigan. I, I know who they all are, but it's I'm just for 15 minutes before I leave for the arena, um, you know, during a pre-recorded interview during the pregame, I'm just sitting on my phone and it's not I'm not just leafing through Twitter. I'm okay, number one player, number two player, and just getting that instinct into my mind. Um I, I do like the like the TV chart that they have on on baseball as well, or uh, on the game notes as well. But um, for me, that, that flashcard, it's called Brainscape. It's a free app. Uh, and to me, that's been invaluable in, in learning, especially in like tournament settings where you're not really seeing, you know, when we played Texas Southern in the first round, I mean, I, you know, I watched one Texas or two Texas Southern games, but it was the playing game and then the game against us. Um, it helps immensely just to get that name and number, you know, fluidity quickly. Well, people love Michigan basketball. They also love Michigan football. And you have a role on the broadcast, of course, serving as producer, getting to be the pre and post host. Have you done any demo games of Michigan or anything like that? How have you uh, been flexing your football muscles uh, since you arrived in Ann Arbor? No, I haven't done that. Um, I called a good amount of high school um, when I was in college. And then um, we had an opportunity a few times through Learfield with some of the, the schools around um Winston-Salem, Wake Forest, Duke, App State, to get some demos there. So uh, had there not been a pandemic, I'm sure that would have been something that would have been manageable last year because um, I moved up here uh, the very end of October. Um, so I was still trying to get my bearings, understand how, you know, understand how my role is different on site versus in the studio while still being on air. So I, the hope is at some point this year to do at least one game, um, but unfortunately – not yet at this point, but fingers crossed we can make that happen. And Brian, at this point, you know, how much are you listening to other guys around, uh, whether it's the Big Ten or 
um, just around the country, NBA. Like, are are you every night just listening and listening? Kind of like I know me and Roger kind of do that. We we go through the TuneIn app, and are you kind of the same way? Oh yeah, and honestly, so Learfield plug here, um, the College Football Blitz. That that's how I do it, man. It is the NFL red zone for college football on the audio side. And, man, I mean, there are just so many good broadcasters. Um, you know, for a year I hosted when I first started at Michigan, at, at Learfield with Oregon. Jerry Allen is as good as it gets at Oregon. He, he is phenomenal. I hope he does that until he's 120 years old. Um, Craig way at Texas is phenomenal. Like you just know it's Texas when you hear his voice, Josh Lewin at UCLA, which was, it was really cool to get to talk with him a little bit during the NCAA tournament. I've, I've always been a fan of, of him and just how versatile he is. I mean, his description's incredible. And, you know, even I mean, we all know this, there are so many good broadcasters who aren't in these marquee type jobs. Like I, I worked with MTSU ship Walters is phenomenal. He is great and is such a good guy. Um, you know, I, being from a Mac school, Steve Baker at Miami of Ohio is outstanding. I mean, he is a tremendous broadcaster. So, you know, that's how I normally do it. There are certain guys, and I, I mentioned, you know, some of them off the top of who I will I will seek out their games. Uh, but in the Big Ten too, I mean, gosh, I, I, I it is it is humbling and at times overwhelming to think that like you know. I'm calling the same game that, you know, Matt LePay at Wisconsin or Steve Jones at Penn State or Paul Keels at Ohio State. Like, we're calling this. And I'm not like for the student station like that, that there is still some surrealness to that. Um, but it, it's, you know, it, it just goes to show you that when you have these types of opportunities, I don't care if you're doing the play by play or for me on football, doing the halftime post game. You know, there's real meaning. There are a lot of people who could do that and would love to do that. So you got to bring it. You've got to be great. I don't care what you're doing. I don't care what the game is. Um, you know, my prep, but should my prep should be the same for tomorrow night, Michigan, Washington, and you know, prime time, as it is the next week for Northern Illinois coming to town. My prep for the Elite Eight game against UCLA should be the same as that that Bowling Green game I mentioned back in November. Like for me, that's that's what's so vital about all this because man there are so many good broadcasters who are at jobs that would make sense and there are so many good broadcasters who who aren't in those cream of the crop positions that i mean they're they're phenomenal as well the, the talent is is ridiculous what are you listening for now when you go back and you listen to your tape how much are you listening to the full game of it um you know i, I get into a habit of listening to everything right after the game's over and i think it's better to be a little bit more removed from that game before you, you listen back to it. But for you, do you have a bullet point of things that you're you're listening for when you go through your tape? So for me, I won't I won't listen to every single game all the way through. Um, I try to pick out snippets, either a, a, a chunk where I felt, boy, that was really good. Like I felt like I had a good eight minutes of game action there. Let me see if I've if I've got the right. If, I, if I'm right about myself or there's times where I feel like, boy, I'm just, I'm using the same word a lot. I, I have some crutches that I don't like. So for me, it's more about pinpointing those areas, not going through everything. Cause you know, if, if we beat a team by 40 points in the non-conference, I, I think that's more of like, let's put together a good show. 
I don't know how much I can glean from that, honestly. But in terms of close games down the stretch, for me, something that I, I feel like I'm, I'm constantly trying to improve is, is in basketball, every word is so valuable because things move so quickly. You have to be accurate and descriptive. And I, I feel like for me, one of my main takeaways from last year was I need to be even better at describing where things are on the court. And the challenge is describing that while also giving time and score, talking about why this matters, involving your analysts. And we've got a great one in Terry Mills here. Love him to death. All while not talking too quickly. It's a delicate balance to try to get all that in, to be informative, entertaining, uh, descriptive, but also not too aggressive with our tone, tenor, word usage, et cetera. It's not easy. That's, that's a very challenging thing to do. So uh, for me, it's, it's pinpointing, okay, where are the areas I know I can get better? And where's some areas in the broadcast I know, hey, I thought that was great. Am I right? Or I know that wasn't that great. How do I improve? Um, I think that, and I, I did that in minor league baseball. A good amount. I, I, I was not listening to all three hours of my games in minor league baseball. But you know what? If you take a half inning out here and there, um, either very good or very bad at first blush, I think that helps to kind of set the tone. You can't work on everything every game, but you know, it's. I wish I could do that. Like, there's like, there's a million <laughs> things I know I'm doing wrong. But if you focus on one, I think it helps. Uh, I think in broadcasting, we can take a lot away from that, too. Going back to football for one minute, it was cool uh, a couple years ago in Alabama played Michigan in the Citrus Bowl, and I'm sitting in the Alabama booth, and I just look next door in the Michigan booth. There's Jim Branstetter along with Dan Deerdorf, you know, two Michigan men who have been just such legends of that university. Just what have you picked up from being around those guys? And, you know, Jim has called so many big moments in Michigan history. Well, that – so Jim – and Dan, I mean, the, Jim doesn't have the traditional play-by-play experience. Uh, Dan did, obviously, TV at the highest possible level. What I love about those two and what they've brought is that when you listen to a Michigan football game, you know who they're pulling for, what their background is, and that they are cheering for Michigan. I understand that's not everybody's cup of tea. Because some people want the unbiased, but it kind of fits more in like the NBA TV style where it's, there's a lot more of like that, you know, homerism, if you will. But it goes beyond that with these two because they both played here. They both won here. They both, you know, I mean, Dan Deardorff's an NFL Hall of Famer. They are so close in terms of a friendship. Uh, and they're even closer, it seems, to the university and football program. You know and understand and can hear how everything is interlocked and how how much Michigan and Michigan football means to that broadcast. And I think our fans resonate to that. That can make up for any sort of, you know, it's the game's not going right. Or last year, we're not calling it in person, right? We're, we're doing road games uh, in a remote location. But if you have that, ESPN, ABC, Fox, CBS can't bring that. I understand that you know more people are going to watch on TV than listen on the radio, but you know you've got your hometown call, and you don't get any more hometown than Jim and Dan with Michigan football. It is the peak of the peak, um, and I, I, for me, more than anything else, that um, that's what's meant the most to me in working with them. And 
you know, so when I first got up here, I grew up in Ohio. I don't obviously talk about that a ton here. Um, but I, you know, when I first met Dan in person, at first he made the joke of, I just thought you were a figment of my imagination. I heard you, but never saw you, um, <laughs> which was great. And, and then he said, he's like, you know, he's asked me about my background. I said, yeah, I grew up just outside of Cleveland. And he's like, ah, cause I mean, he, you know, he's from, he's from Ohio as well. Grew up close to the, to the hall of fame where he will live forever. And you know, he said, you know, Michigan's been built on a lot of great people from the state of Ohio. Glad you're on the team or something along those lines. And that just, you know, um, you know, cause I had a lot of family members who were like, we're happy for you, but Michigan, come on. <laughs> um, you know, uh, to hear that from Dan, uh, that was, that meant a lot. And that'll, that'll stay with me for a long time. This will be my final one, but I know you mentioned assembly hall before your, your favorite road venue in the big 10 for, for hoops. And you can throw in football too. What do you got? Uh, so I haven't been at many football venues. Right. I, I did fill in on the sidelines at a whiteout at Penn State, which was um, that was amazing. Now the stadium itself is ugly as hell, um, <laughs> but when that place is rocking, it's amazing. For me, I'll say Mackey Arena, uh, Penn or uh, Purdue. Um, that to me, that place is uh, it's just it's just super loud. We have a great vantage point. Um, you know, I've got some family with Purdue ties, so I've always kind of appreciated the, you know, the 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 tradition of that school. But man, it's just it's just a big loud circle. Like that's awesome. I I, I was really impressed the one time we went there. I'm excited. You know, those could be a couple of top ten matchups when we play them uh, during the regular season this year. So uh, I'll go Purdue, but Assembly Hall is way up there. Um, you know, it was fun calling a game at Breslin Center. Um, uh, that's Michigan State, um, but yeah, I'll I'll put Mackey up there for for right now. Um, but but there have been some, and also shout out Battle for Atlantis. It's amazing to just be able to walk your hotel to yeah. a college basketball game. Uh, that was pretty sweet too. So an interesting fun fact. So Rogers called games in Atlantis. I've yeah. I filled in in Atlantis for Florida. I don't think I got to meet you, Brian. Alabama, Alabama and Michigan didn't meet, and I think we were always in and out at the same time. But uh, yeah, it was a good week. Boog was there as so, well. <laughs> So quick story. So this was 29th and Michigan won. This was Juwan Howard's first year. And um, so we won the first game. Uh, and that meant we were on the top half of the bracket for the second and the third game. That week is Thanksgiving week. And it's also, of course, the week of Michigan, Ohio State. So we had originally planned to fly back on Saturday and I was going to have to miss it. Just logistically, it wasn't going to work. It's not easy to fly from the Bahamas to Detroit. And so I, we won the game. I called the travel agent for the company. I just said, Hey, I'm just curious. Is there a Friday night flight out of the Bahamas, out of Nassau that could potentially get me back so I could could host for the game Saturday in Ann Arbor? She's like, okay, let me look. She's like, you just called me. I was about to leave for the holiday. I'm like, I'm so sorry. She's like, it's fine. She's great. Shout out Cindy Johnson. She's awesome. And she said, actually, I can get you on a Friday night flight and it would save the company seven hundred dollars. <laughs> Mike. Okay. So sure enough, we, we ended up winning the tournament and uh, because of that we had the second game of the day. So it was a little bit of a tight fit, but took a, a cab to the airport, um, got there. Okay, this then the power in the entire airport goes out. I'm like, no, no, no. So they're like, we don't know where we, we had, you know, we, we were like, okay, 
you know, we're going to go on the airplane. No, no, we're not. Stay here, blah, 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 all the, the normal stuff. So I'm like, all right, I'm probably not going to be able to get from, I'm not going to be able to hit my connector from Miami to Detroit, but I can at least, you know, try to get to Miami and then maybe get there for kickoff and be able to do halftime and postgame. I rebooked my flight to Saturday morning from Miami to Detroit. I kid you not, two minutes later, the power comes back on. All right, we're boarding in five minutes. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. So we get we land in Miami. There's like it's like 23 or four minutes uh, until that flight. I'm at like gate A4, and of course the flight's like A812, right? And I'm running through the Miami airport and I'm like, I finally get there. I'm out of breath. They're on like, there's what, like nine zones now. Like they're on like zone 14 and I'm like, I, I rebooked. I, I just, I got to get back. Like any chance you get me on. And they're like, okay, well, let's look. As long as your bag is still connected to you, like, you know, the, cause I checked the bag, we can get you on this flight. We got a couple empty seats. Okay. You're good. We get back. Everything's fine. And of course, my bag's not there. It was not connected to me, but I didn't give a rip. I got to go. So I was this weirdo who decided to get back to Michigan in late November quicker than um, than I instead of staying an extra night in the Bahamas. But we got there. It was awesome. But uh, flying flying in the Caribbean can be a challenge, and, and that power outage certainly was one of those cases. Yeah, we had power outages that Friday night. Alabama played Southern Miss to close out as Alabama won seventh place out of eighth uh, in that tournament. Uh, yeah, right. we had power yeah, outages yeah. Yeah, leading up to that. the game. We had it at halftime. I mean, it was uh, a crazy time. But, you know, at least we didn't have to engineer those games. That was uh, what I was relieved about, at least. <laughs> no doubt. But, uh, Brian, this has been a really fun hour just kind of picking your brain, and uh, we've really enjoyed getting to learn more about you and your journey from minor league baseball to Michigan, and we're excited for all the things that are ahead for you. Just thank you so much for spending some time with us, and we look forward to your next broadcast. No doubt, guys. Appreciate the the work you guys have done on the show. I, I feel like we have we know a lot of the same people and have, have crossed similar paths but have never actually met in person, so I, I hope that happens sometime soon. Thanks, Brian. All right. Thanks to Brian Bush. Thanks to all of you for watching Broadcaster Hour.